their salvation just as much as you're about ours. And you want your presence to be in their lives as well, as much as ours. So guide us this morning as we look at this topic of your presence, how your presence brings victory. In Christ's name, amen. By now, we've gotten all the details clarified since last week's sermon, right? I remember I was up here talking about there was two heroes who jumped those guys on that train from Amsterdam to Paris, and some of you were saying three, and I couldn't figure out what you were talking about because, well, I hadn't watched the news that morning. Maybe you did. I don't know. But there I was this week, and it kept going across my Yahoo, or, or every time I got on the internet, there was, it seemed like there was something about these guys one way or another, and how not only were they heroes, but now they were receiving honors. And one of them was asked why they did what they did. And he says, well, we just looked at each other and it was adrenaline, right? Uh, Adrenaline that kicked in uh, their instincts as far as to serve our country and to serve others as well. And they have received honors. As you can see in this picture here, they've come before dignitaries. They have been considered heroes, rightly so. And I said last week, and I'm saying again this week, we really need more heroes in our society today who will step in, not just physically, but spiritually to change not only our lives one by one, but to change our culture one by one. That's really how it's going to happen, not by some mosaic figure stepping up in our country and somehow legislating morality in our country. It's going to happen one silent conversion at a time. It may take someone saying words. It may take someone having actions like these heroes did. But really, God is calling each one of us to be the heroes in the stories today because I believe that what prompted them was not just adrenaline, but every act of goodness really originates in the author of goodness himself. And for whatever reason, he had them there at that time to save lives and to hold back evil intent. And I think the same thing happens today. He wants to do in each one of us. He wants to have his presence in our lives so we have victory and then we hold back the evil in our world. It's not just the angels holding the four corners. It's us holding back the evil as well because people see a changed life. You know, in that children's story, I talked of how God had changed me. It was really his presence that changed me from one year to the next. One year before, that guy would have been a bloody mess on the ground as far as him hitting me in the back on the way to church. But what had made the difference? It was the presence of God in my life that made the difference. And so we go back to Joshua. We found out last week that the Lord made a way. The Lord made a way. It wasn't Joshua or the priest stepping into the water that made the way or the ark. It was the Lord himself. The leaders, the human leaders, are just tokens of God's presence. They're just indicators that he's worked in that person's life or through that physical thing so that people could see him. Because Joshua was clear. As your feet would get wet, the Lord would go before you and make a way. And that's exactly what we need in our society and in our hearts and our lives today is the Lord making a way. The Lord changing the circumstances. The Lord changing our, as some people say, destinies that are supposedly fixed. The cross proves that that's not the case. This story proves that that's not the case. The Lord makes a way in every life. And we're going to find today, it comes through His personal presence. And I know some people don't like talking about His presence. Because when you talk about His presence, it's like... A weird nebulous concept. I mean, we read about him in the book, we can handle that, but what would happen if God literally jumps out of the pages of this book, changes your life, and then talks to you like Abraham and Noah and others like a friend? You're one with him. 
That would be a huge, amazing story. And yet, we read about it right here in the pages of Scripture. God made a way through the Jordan. The people who were in the land, they watched in amazement. They were astonished. And look what happens while God is converting a nation and while God is using this group of holy people. The nations around, watch how they act. It happened when all the kings of the Amorites, there were several city-states who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that Jehovah had dried up the waters in front of the sons of Israel until we had passed over, that their hearts melted. That is what's going on in our culture today. Hearts are melting. When you feel like you've got to get a concealed carry permit because you're fearful, when you feel like your family is not safe, even just, uh, I've heard of people going to Walmart and getting robbed right over at Walmart, coming out to their car. When, you, when the society begins to generate a sense of fear and emotionalism, and it feels like the whole group is going down an emotional track, that's exactly what was happening back then. And yet God was sending his people to make a difference and to save Rahab and her family. And by the way, he would have done that for the whole bunch of towns all around there. Don't you know that when you look at the story of Rahab, you also see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that God would have saved the whole city if there had been how many righteous? And we find Abraham goes down to 10. Imagine God wanting to save the Canaanites, but they did not respond to him. And so today, we find the same story is repeated. The nations are fearful, the kings are wondering in amazement, and yet God is sending a people to change their hearts, if they will receive these people. And the story of Rahab proves that. And so she is overjoyed when they cross the Jordan. The rest of the people are not overjoyed. And now, since the crossing of the Jordan, we have a series of events. I put them up on the screen. Here they are. We find that they, when they were in Egypt, long before this group, right after they came out of Egypt, Moses had the people circumcised. But then they wandered in the wilderness, right? And now you have a group of people who don't have the mark, if you will. And so God calls them under the Lord's direction. He calls Joshua to have the circumcision take place of all male Israelites. That's a physical reminder that they were his people. And in the area that needed to be purified the most, it was the sexuality of that day. The immorality of the land was gross and beyond imagination, even in today's standards. It says in chapter 5, verse 6, that they did that. And really what's happening is they're overcoming where their ancestors failed. Do we have ancestor worship going on today? Do we have generational sins that have come down and are chaining us to what's happened in our past? I know what my generational sins are. I know it's divorce. I know it's uh, greed and lust. And I can just go down the line of the people before me who have fallen. And I've watched in my life as God has begun to break those chains. The anger was a huge one in my family. You say, well, that's just because you were German. But that is not the, that's an excuse. It's like an alcoholic saying, I can't stop drinking because it's just genetic. Well, come off of it. Isn't there someone who is beyond genetics? Isn't there someone who is beyond generational sins because he's been before the generations? Isn't there someone who can create in us a clean heart? And so... These people overcome where the others failed. And now they're the second big mass group of individuals circumcised, ready to enter the land. Yes, they're different. And the place that they are there is called the Hill of Foreskins. It's a perpetual reminder that God took away not their skin, but their sin. 
And so the place is called Gilgal. The reproach has been rolled away. The reproach of their ancestors is gone. They can start new. And yes, literally the waters have been rolled away and heaped up. And now they're walk, they've walked across on dry land. That's an interesting play on words here. And they begin to celebrate the Passover, trusting that God has led them that far. A holy convocation. It mentions this old grain. Where did they get that old grain at? In the other side of the Jordan. And it mentions here that God is now done with the other side of the Jordan, figure of speaking. And now he's going to do something amazing. It says in Joshua 5, verse 10, the sons of Israel camped in Gilgal. That's, that's the place where everything has rolled away, left behind, and now they're moving forward. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at the evening in the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the old grain of the land on the next day after the Passover. They ate unleavened cakes and roasted grain in the same day. And the manna stopped on the next day. Aren't we eating manna today? I mean, it's right here. This has gone down through time, through bloody incidents. I picked up the Life magazine at one of the, one of the racks uh, in the store. It had the Pope on the front of it. It's going through and it's, it's sugarcoating all the medieval ages. But as I look at it, this Word of God was preserved all the way down through that when Bibles were chained to the pulpits. When you, even if you could get to that pulpit without being somehow removed, you couldn't read it. This has been given to us. It's gone through ages of blood and ages of peace and ages of war, yes, but it has been given to us and we can eat it every morning. Every day, throughout the day. They were, had the physical manna. We have our spiritual manna. And I believe once we step across to the other side, yeah, they'll probably have it in the archive. I believe they'll have it in the archive of heaven. But, but more than likely, those words are all just there for us, for you and for me, the ones who are experiencing this whole world, to guide us in the right way to the point where we would be right in his presence and we wouldn't, necessarily, we wouldn't need to necessarily remember all these words anymore. We probably would have, I would like to memorize them all in heaven. But we would be in the presence of the one who spoke these words. And so there they were, they had seen the fire by the evening and the cloud by day. I loved that yesterday when the clouds came over. I was out working on raised beds. And man, those clouds came in. I thought, oh, I can work for another hour. Kind of hurt my knee in the process. But anyway, there they were, experiencing those miracles of God's presence. And the biggest one, even if the cloud wasn't there, and even if the fire wasn't there at night to keep them warm, you would find the manna every morning, the manna. New every day from the source of life himself. And it says the next day after they'd eaten the old grain of the land, there was no more manna to the sons of Israel. But they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan. So it's a transition, isn't it? It's a total dependence upon God where God sustained him that far. And now he's saying, my promise is being fulfilled. You're going to eat the land of Canaan. Grapes, figs, pomegranates, all those wonderful things. And so that year, they ate the fruit of Canaan. But tuck that away, where there's a physical mark, where there's a lamb celebration like Passover, where there's the fruit of Canaan, because you all know I'm going to take a V-line for the cross eventually, so just tuck that away for later. And so I look at Gilgal, 
And they said he was on the plains of Gilgal. Some argue about where that's at, but we know it's, it's over here somewhere near the Jordan River. It's on the plains area. And you look at geographic maps, they start getting hilly. You can literally look from the plains up, and Jericho could see down, and you could see up. And so there they are on the plains of Gilgal. Gilgal, a place where in the past prophets, or in the future, excuse me, prophets and kings will come from. You find Samuel, Saul, you find those type of stories are going to take place in this region there. But long before that takes place, the whole nation has to trust God and be prepared. And that's what we find happening here. Would Israel learn some lessons that they would remember forever from Gilgal, from this place? Yes. And the biggest lesson they would learn is that God's presence would be with them through it all. That's what we're going to next. Uh, we find in Micah 6, verses 3 to 8, young people, here's your answer to one of your questions on your sheet. This is going to be the biggest lesson that later on in Israelite history they will acknowledge. Yes, there were rituals and rites. Yes, there was the humbling yourself and being circumcised. Yes, there was the humbling yourself before the God of heaven. But this is really what they were to do. Gilgal really echoes down through time till we get to the book of Micah. Micah. No, Micah, I'm not calling your name. Micah, chapter 6. A little book right after Jonah. Micah, chapter 6, verses 3 through 8. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? The Lord says, testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. That's what's going on here in the story of Joshua. They're going across the Jordan after having been redeemed from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. This whole story we're reading today was echoed down through time to a pivotal point in Israelite history. From Acacia Grove, which by the way was where, where we talked about last time, where, the, where they stuck their feet in the water, to Gilgal. What was the main point? The main point was that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. And he has shown you in verse, keep on going down, what shall I come before the Lord with and bow myself before the God, Most High God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, like the Passover they had there? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, huge amounts of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? Some are doing that in our society. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of you? Hmm? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That was a lesson that Micah says was supposed to have been learned there as they were crossing the Jordan River, as they were going up to Jericho at Gilgal. That was the lesson through all the rites and rituals. It was to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. That means you have to be friends to be able to do that. And he's not just our friend, he's our sovereign Lord who says, I have what's best in store for you. It's like a father who, who has so much and he gives so much, and yet his friendship is what really the children like and admire. It's kind of a combination, isn't it? The Lord gives us so much and yet he offers to be the one that will walk with us 
And anything that he takes us through that has to humble us then is something that, I hate to say it, but we should look forward to. And so we find there they were. Yes, they had to recover from the circumcision. Yes, they went through the Passover. But now we find the main point was, Israel, humble yourselves. You cannot take Jericho on your own. You cannot take the kings of the Amorites on your own. You wouldn't stand a chance against the Hittites on your own. And the Philistines, that seafaring band from across over by Crete, I mean, they got giants, and there's no way, there's no way physically speaking you're going to stand against them. I mean, when their spear points weigh 17 pounds like Goliath's, you ever lifted something like that? I got a, a, a special splitter for my oak wood. I, I, I got tired of the flat splitters, you know, that looked like a wedge. I said, you know, I need something gnarly for this thing. This oak wood around here, it's nowhere like the oak wood or the, the madrone of Oregon or whatever. It's just this, once it, even when it's just freshly cut, it's hard to split this stuff. And so there I am out there in the store, and I found this, this uh, amazing-looking diamond wedge that's gold, and I weighed it, and it says it's like three and a half pounds or something. And I said to my boys, I said, can you imagine two of these was the Ishbi Benob giant that, that we find almost killed David at the end of his life. But that's only seven pounds. Ten pounds more was Goliath. I mean, this is a huge man, huge army people out there. How would they stand against them without God's strength? And so Joshua knows that. Israel now as a nation knows that as they humble themselves. And Joshua, we find, as the manna stops, he lifts his eyes up to Jericho. There they are on the plains of Gilgal. He's looking up. He's confident in what the Lord's going to do. He's undaunted by the challenge, but yet, humanly speaking, we've seen in Joshua chapter 1, he has to be told repeatedly, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, four times, be strong and courageous. Why? Because he knows that without God, they are defeated. So yes, he lifts his eyes up to Jericho. We could say that. But I wonder if not, he's looking up to Jericho and saying something to the Lord. I mean, if I was in that situation, even if I had 600,000 men plus women and children, that's a huge responsibility. And I'm looking up to this city, and it's really the gateway to conquering the rest of Canaan. If I conquer this city through the Lord's power, if this city is conquered, then we have trade routes. We can go anywhere. And so I'd be looking up saying, Lord, 20-some thousand people in South Shasta County. 90-some thousand people just in Reading. How in the world are you going to get this thing done? I mean, I would say that today. Imagine facing it and knowing you're going to have to face people with spears and swords and shields. And you as the leader are going to be right in the front of that. And so I'd be lifting my eyes up to the Lord, not just to Jericho. Yeah, I see it. But Lord, what are you going to do about it? I need you, Lord. And behold, there stood a man in front of him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him. Now, at the beginning here, it almost appears that Joshua, since he's looking at Jericho, for whatever reason, it's almost like Jacob and Esau's story, where, where Jacob thinks he's fighting his brother or something in that night wrestling match with the Lord himself, angel of the Lord. And here he looks up and he sees this guy. It <laughs> looks like he's ready to battle. And he doesn't, he's not undaunted. He goes forward to meet the guy. I mean, there he is. 
and ask the question, are you for us or for our foes? Obviously, he doesn't recognize who this is. Looks just like a human being ready for battle. But the answer comes back to brave Joshua. He said, no, I have come as the commander of the army of Jehovah. God is really not against people in this world. Look at John 3.16. He would do anything for any person in this world. So there's really no enemies to fight. There may be evil that we need to stand up against. And there's a lot of freedoms being taken away in our world today, especially in this country. I mean, can you realize that you're sitting there on your computer, and now they're coming out with computers that in order to unlock your computer, it has to take an image of you to unlock that computer. Somehow that little, little camera on there sets a memory in the computer of what your shadow or your figure looks like, and then as you go to log in, you not only have to enter your password, but it's got to match that. That's the next technology that's coming out. So imagine if you're on the internet and you've got that little camera there and someone's watching you. I mean, that's just the next step. They can see your emails. They can hear your phone calls. I mean, we are in a police state. And so, yes, there is some evil we need to stand up against and hold people accountable for. But your government is not your enemy. The people around us are not our enemies. The ones who are committing heinous crimes need to be held accountable, but they need their hearts changed. Everyone in this world, God is for or against, you think? He says to Joshua, you for, Joshua says, are you for or against us? No. I'm not, I'm not, your, I'm not against your enemies, Joshua. Doesn't, don't you think the Lord wanted to reach the city of Jericho? Don't you think that he would have saved more than just Rahab and her family? I was reading different quotations about this. It makes it very clear that the Lord desired more than just Rahab. And so, no, I have come as the commander of the army of Jehovah. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. He worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? He recognizes this isn't just some man in armor here who's ready to try to strike me down and take out the leader of Israel. This is the commander of Israel and all the heavenly hosts and the universe. Do you not realize if, if the unfallen worlds were allowed to get involved here, they'd be just as likely as the angels to say, let's nuke them all. I mean, nuke some of these people. Like Jesus on the cross, the angels wanted to step in and do something about it. God isn't just the commander of the angels. He's the ruler of the whole universe. And so we find he falls before him and worships. We know this is more than just an angel. We know this is more than just a human being because why would a devout person who is undaunted as he faces his task, why would he fall before this guy and pray? Why would he grasp his feet? Or why would he fall before this guy and worship him? It's none other than the Lord. He recognizes it. What does my Lord say to his servant? This is the one who made the world. This is the one who led them by fire in the wilderness. This is the one in the cloud by day as well. This is the one who told them just a little while ago, get your feet wet and get across the Jordan River. I'm going to pave a way before you there. This is the very one. And now before Joshua even lays foot or even begins to march the armies into Jericho, around Jericho, this individual paves the way again comes to Joshua with his presence, his own personal presence. And the commander of Jehovah's army said to him, take your shoe off your foot for the place on which you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, I am very detail-oriented and as I read this word shoe, 
it really bothered me. Because when I read the story about Moses, he said, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. So we find here it's just one shoe in the Hebrew, and in the Greek Septuagint, it's the same way. It just bothered me. Was this just a figure of speech? I said, well, I just think it's the way Moses was told, and now he's doing the same thing Moses did. He's taking his shoes off. And you say, well, don't make, I'm not going to make a big sermonic point about this, but I'm going to say this. In the ancient Near East, especially you find, for instance, the story in Ruth chapter 4, when there was a transfer taking place, they would take a shoe off, and they would give it to the one who was receiving that transfer. In the case of, we find Ruth, the, the kinsman redeemer who was closest, didn't want a redeemer. So we find he takes his shoe off and gives it to Boaz, saying, she is yours. And so I'm looking at this text and saying, it could be that, couldn't it? Couldn't it be that he's saying, you know what? You're the Lord, and I recognize I'm standing on your ground. This is your place, and I'm taking it off. This land is yours. I'm just here to do your will. It could be that, couldn't it? I mean, the language is like, why just use the word shoe? But if you're not comfortable with that, then we find uh, Moses' experience is probably what you're more comfortable with. And it says, I will turn aside now the burning bush, Moses said, and see this great sight. Similar type of thing happening. Here, Jericho's looking, Joshua's looking up at Jericho. And, sorry, before it was Joshua looking at Jericho. Here, it's Moses looking at this bush. And the bush isn't burning. And when Jehovah saw that he turned, who is this? This is the Lord himself. Saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the midst of the bush. Moses, Moses. He said, here am I. And he said, draw not hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And so you can go either way with it. I think I draw both lessons out. Joshua, by kneeling and taking the shoe off, is saying, this is your land. This is your battle. This is yours. Yes. But he's also falling before him as Lord and saying, Lord, can you use me? And any Israelite reading this text years later would know that it's almost like God is transferring and going through the same experiences with Joshua he went through with Moses and saying, I'm upholding you like the Moses that we need in this part of the world. Let's go down closer to our time. You have someone named Yeshua, or you find Jesus in the Greek. We find he has humbled himself. We find just becoming a human being, human flesh. And we find him going down through a life in ministry that, that a lot of times is saying he's the greater Moses. That's why we don't need a mosaic figure to stand up and lead us religiously in this country. We need Jesus to do that. And so we find this mosaic figure fulfills the prophecies, is born on time. We find he's baptized on time. All the way down through the prophecies are all being fulfilled. And now we find him humbling himself and being wounded on the cross. His flesh being cut not like circumcision, but cut and ripped and torn. And imagine receiving those, Dr. Lavolsi, I mean, you could just explain it someday to us, just receiving the amount of pain that would be inflicted if you were to stick a nail right through your wrists. And if your legs were together, how much pain would it be if they stuck a longer one through both your legs into the wood? I mean, this would be horrendous. And then to pick you up and to jar you down into that hole and to wounded for us, a leader, wounded for us. And yet we find the cross stands there, doesn't it? He's the lamb, just like in Joshua's time, the Passover. He's the mosaic figure. He's the one that's heaping up or rolling back the reproach and saying, from this point on, there's hope for everybody. There's hope for everybody before the cross as they look forward to it. There's hope for everybody since the cross as we look back to it and look forward to him coming again. 
And so this mosaic figure emerged. That's a little bit closer to our day. And what I found was interesting was instead of having the circumcision mark, we find he on the cross is that lamb slain for us. Paul says your Passover lamb has been slain. And he talks about Jesus. And what is that? What is the mark in his body? We find the mark that stays with him forever are those scars. You find in the Old Testament, what are those scars in your hands? We find he overcame where Israel failed. Look at Matthew 4, you find that. He buries their reproach literally and comes out of that tomb a conqueror. And he provides his presence, just like he did with Joshua. He provides it today. He says, I will be with you always, each one of you. Murray, you. And not only that, he provides his promise. Someday soon, you're not going to eat the manna of this land anymore that I'm providing for you every day. You're going to see me face to face and eat my words as I speak them to you personally. And so he will take us home. Right now, we can eat his body by faith as we trust his words, as we read his words, as we daily stand on holy ground and kneel on holy ground before him. But I think deep down, as we stand before him, and he says, well done, I'm just going to take my shoe off, my crown off, and say, it's all yours, Lord, and put it at his feet. And so at his presence, there's that peace, in his presence, there's that victory, and that bread of the presence that he gives us each day, that's really what's going to begin changing hearts. That's what changed some of your hearts over the years and what changed my grandfather's heart to the point where he would reach out to somebody like me. That's what's going to change. Now here we are, surveying the land, literally taking surveys out to the land around us. Here we are having this prayer breakfast and 10 days of prayer and consecrating ourselves similar to a motive that we find in Joshua. And yet, a spiritual battle stands before us And if you don't believe it, just wait and see what's going to happen to your church before or after these meetings you're going to have. There will be an attempt by the devil to divide us and to keep us hindered from the people who will come to know Jesus. And so we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. But I believe if we keep moving forward, if we keep daily spending that time with him and corporately when we get together just pointing to him, then soon and very soon, this beautiful fruit, this beautiful food that we have will be replaced with the heavenly fruit of Canaan. And we will see our commander face to face. And he won't have that sword drawn necessarily trying to say, you know, you want to say, Who's, who are you, friend or foe? You'll know who he is. And you'll see him. And you say, this is my God. He will come and save me. And so I look forward to seeing my commander face to face. What about you? I uh, was there at that church years ago in this Winston church up in Oregon. And I just remember they had me uh, as a deacon. And I remember just feeling like if there's anything wrong with the church, I'm going to be there and deal with it. If there's anything that needs to be cleaned, I'll clean it. If there's, and one time they jacked up the church a little bit to, to kind of, because it was starting to sag. And so I'm crawling under this crawl space. I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but I got a head deacon that does, and I'm just under there helping whatever way I can. And I just remember. Every time I'd go to that church and I'd finish the janitorial on Thursday or Friday, I would sit in the sanctuary, and there they just had a small sanctuary, and I would, and they had chairs, because it was supposed to have been a fellowship hall, and they didn't get this big part here of the church building built until I came and did a series of meetings a few years ago, right before they did a series, they got it built just a few years ago. But I remember sitting there in the sanctuary, 
hearing the clock tick, and just calm. We have this building, we have these relationships for a time. And I believe, if we look at them correctly, if we gather together the right spirit, this in a way will be like a man experience each week. And each day as we're together with the Lord. And then that peace that we feel in places like this and when we're opening our Bibles, it will blur into in comparison compared to Jesus who will become clear before our eyes when we see Him. This is really what the world needs. They need the presence of Jesus. Will we be the ones to take them there? I remember one of the favorite songs we had there and some of those saints have long died since, uh, since I went there. But one of the songs we would sing is our closing hymn today. It's number 626, In a Little While We're Going Home. And I remember at a certain point it hits a high note and I just remember just the whole congregation just erupting at that point. And so today, sing your heart out to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to see you face to face. I know you from your word. I know you from experiences. I know you as we come here. But I want to see you face to face and go home with you soon. So come Holy Spirit. Fill me with Fill me with your own, in your own special way, with your strength and your power, God's will to always obey. Come Holy Spirit and fill me. Thank you for filling me this day with your strength and your power. In Jesus' holy name, I pray. Amen.